As a programming note, this podcast starts out with an over half-hour discussion of Project Big Picture, which as of this morning is no longer an option for the Premier League and the EFL. We still think it's a valuable conversation about the future of the sport. However, it is a lesson to me to drink a smaller beer and edit the show the same night. We're tanned, focused, and ready after an international break here on the Owls Americats for Sheffield Wednesday Opinion with American Accent. I don't know why we're hosting a show after the international break. We've never done it before. I think that's our first episode, but whatever. Anyway, I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. I had planned to undercut the return of James Allen to the podcast by drinking one of his beers. I had a single-cut beer smith plain top pilsner several of them in the fridge but then i opened the fridge before the show started and there were no canned beers from astoria queens or anything other than the (laughs) home-brewed summer stout that my friend brought over uh this past weekend was doing some work around the house very plain bottle bottle cap that says real beer pours quite nice uh very easy drinking i'll describe it that way has some of the traits of homebrew that I'm not particularly a fan of, but it is beer. It's a nice dry stout. We have a lot to cover, and I have a lot of beer, so we're good to go, as far as I'm concerned. Also very much good to go this week, because he has a giant glass of whiskey in front of him instead of his weird non-alcoholic <laughs> tea beer. It's Patty Jones. Patty, what are you drinking? Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, I'm very excitedly drinking a very large uh, old-fashioned um, because I have consumed less than a thousand calories uh, so far today, so I deserve uh, to top I that up. I think that's going to hit you pretty hard if you've had <laughs> less than a thousand calories today, Patty. Uh, and mainly sprouts as well. It's my, my dinner of sprouts uh, and a bit of pork on the side. Uh, so um, yeah, it's going to be a, a fruity musical episode. Adding to our chorus in his closet in Queens, New York, it's James Allen. James, what are you drinking? Hello, gentlemen. Um, this week, three is the magic number uh, in that we only have three agenda items uh, because we haven't got any games to cover. But uh, hey, um, it was a good excuse for me to go up to Fifth Hammer, um, which is one of my local breweries, and uh, get their three-year anniversary IPA. Uh, and appropriately, it's a triple IPA. So it's a 10 percenter. So I'm holding that in reserve. And um, in honor of the uh, the magic number, I'm warming up with a Rockaway People Power which is um, basically a beer that just says on the tin, get out and fucking vote because there's an election in three weeks. And unless you're a white supremacist, there's probably something riding at stake on this one. We don't do politics on this podcast, but (laughs) make sure you're voting. We won't do politics, but we're kind of going to do politics. It's the politics of the Premier League. We'll talk about Project Big Picture in a bit before I do that, because I've already jumped the agenda despite... I don't know how much alcohol is in this beer. I introduced our fourth host. I got I got on the subject of threes, I guess, because of Jim, so I'll blame him. But in New England, the home of Project Big Picture, perhaps. John Henry's Boston Red Sox as well. It's Justin DeSorger. Justin, what are you drinking? I've uh, abandoned uh, abandoned my New England roots for at least one beer. I got a beer geek from... Uh, McKellar Brewing in San Diego. It's a uh, vanilla shake. Oh dear! Uh, Imperial Imperial Stout. I'm, I'm so familiar with it. All of us, yeah, all of us will be uh, quite lively by the end of this one, is my guess. 
and I will be switching to uh, local brewery Knockabout uh, as this pod uh, goes on. So I had the option. I had the option to get it in my last delivery order, but it was like thirty bucks for a four pack. But I did strongly consider it. Uh, I was a little surprised when uh, I got a mix pack. You rang that can up at eight bucks. Yeah, that's... <laughs> so far so good. No, it's quite good, and it's like thirteen percent. So. I've had it at the City Field, McKellar, and it will, uh, it's what you need to get through a Mets game in most cases, or to get through a podcast. And in this episode, we will talk about Project Big Picture, talk some Wednesday news, and we'll preview the Birmingham and Brentford games. But we will start with the big news of the week that's all over soccer slash football Twitter, as the Premier League considers a fairly radical restructuring. It doesn't involve a European Super League, although I suppose it could involve a European Super League if the EFL is not amenable to these plans. It's being driven by Manchester United and Liverpool and their American ownership, hence the John Henry reference earlier. And just to outline the major points, there's the COVID Rescue Fund, which will be $250 million for two seasons for the EFL and $100 million for the FA generally with a smattering of money for the National League grassroots and women's soccer as well. A major change to the league structure, an 18-team Premier League starting in the 2022-23 season with 24-team second, third, and fourth tiers. No major changes promotion to relegation. Uh, they will institute a playoff system similar to what you see in, in the Bundesliga and elsewhere in, in uh, continental Europe, where the 16th side plays a, a three four five playoff winner in uh from the championship called the elimination of the community shield and the league cup uh changes to the financial distribution down the pyramid and and to parachute payments but the efl money distribution will be based on where you are in the pyramid uh, the institution of salary caps, which we've already seen in League 1 and League 2, changes to the academies and loan structure, increased infrastructure funds, increased charity and grassroots, a cap on Premier League away tickets. But uh, there's a 13th point on this agenda, which will consolidate a large amount of power in the nine teams that have never, essentially never been relegated. Well, I guess West Ham has, <laughs> but uh, been in the Premier League the longest at this point. Uh, and only six of them, six of them will essentially have a majority voting power over basically anything that happens up and down the football pyramid. We're going to have a lot of thoughts on this, but I will start with Justin. I mean, there's a lot of talking points here. Um, and, and to be honest, this is the type of thing that's so big and, and so much is in the details that it's definitely going to need some time to to settle and for people to work through it. But what to me it very simply breaks down to is this the Premier League is willing to share more broadly uh, much of their infinite supply of money if if uh, the rest of British football allows essentially six clubs to make all the decisions that will inevitably benefit them and them alone. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's the that's the very basics of the breakdown. If we want to go into individual things, I'm happy to do that. But, you know, I don't know about you guys. From what I saw, that's the trade-off. We'll give you money. You give us all the power to make decisions. 
Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> right, next, next gen point. I was going to say, let's move on. Um, no, I mean, look, <clears throat> let's unpack this a little bit, right? So, as you said at the outset, Jeff, right, this, this proposal, which apparently has been long in the making, um, although seems to have caught half the Premier League by surprise, um, has uh, has definitely got everybody talking. Um, I assume, because, I assume you know, 11 of the teams were caught by surprise. <laughs> yeah, quite. It's... Um, you know, normally I think when we've talked about, you know, potentially consolidation of Premier League power, it's kind of been the Premier League versus, right? And there's been an antagonism. In this case, you've kind of got a fox in the chicken coop in the form of Rick Parry, who uh, obviously was, you know, an original member of the Premier League infrastructure, was at Liverpool, now obviously heading the EFL and seems to be very complicit in these plans for good or for bad. Um, and I guess, you know, the way you summed it up, Justin, is, is exactly right. I mean, it is basically an offer to share in exchange for a consolidation of power, I guess if you take a really big step back, let's be clear about what's what's happening in British football. You know, there is already a consolidation of power. Um, there are already a small group of clubs who ultimately, you know, run the league in at least dominance of finances. Um, and it is increasingly impossible for the championship and the rest of the pyramid to keep up. So both of those challenges to some extent are offset by this proposal i think the the big question is is this the right way to approach the problem um or other alternative models including you know the american style lockout if you will kind of a perpetual premier league without promotion relegation which would be alternatives and would they be palatable in comparison you know there's just so much to unpack here um and i don't even know if it's a negotiation it seems to be something they've They've clearly put a lot of thought in, but at the moment it seems more of an idea than it is a necessarily a concrete proposal or something to vote on. It feels a bit like a a, a power grab when we're our most vulnerable. When I say our, I mean like the it, lowest. It's a bribe, team. essentially. Right. It, it's like you make this Faustian pact with the the uh, overlords of the Premier League, which is the, the top six clubs, and we'll bail you out right now. And look, to be fair. Right now, the deal of having 25% of their media cash and, and revenue that they get from uh, these these big clubs seems a fantastic long-term proposition, right? So that's why Rick Parry is uh, um, for this and he was involved in getting that deal. He's trying to preserve the long-term future of the lower football leagues and the lower clubs within it, which is an admirable thing, right? But then you've got to look at the other end of the scale. Is, it, is that going to last? Because... If you've put the power of, say, six to nine clubs, six clubs that have got a majority vote, uh, to change that further down the line, then there's no guarantee that you're going to get that revenue uh, long term because they can change their minds because they've got ultimate power again. So it's like, here, have this money now. And yes, we promise you you'll get 25% uh, for the next how long. Uh, but by the way, we've gonna, we're going to have the, all, all the same the, uh, decisions going forward and we can vote on that and it'll be in our best interest to vote for ourselves. <laughs> so there's two things here that really strike me. Um, first of all, the driving forces behind this are Manchester United and Liverpool, both who have American sports ownership that are used to more of a top-down uh, closed system structure where the owners have... Well, Generally, the owners are all on the same page. I'll put it that way, especially in baseball, certainly in football as well. While 
one of the things you've heard around this proposal is that these, you know, uh, ownership of Manchester United and Liverpool specifically are not thrilled that it's sort of one team, one vote, essentially. That it, 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 there's an irony here that sort of the British football structure is more democratic than the American uh, sports one. But I just don't see, like Manchester United especially, and we have such short memories, you know, all of these teams and I think soccer punditry in general, and we're four dudes in our late 30s, and we just sort of imagine British soccer as having started in 1992 with the formation of the Premier League, and that's sort of the the way the discussion happens, you know, when it's great goal scorers in soccer history, it's Alan Shearer and it's not Dixie Dean. You know, I cover baseball for a living, which if anything might be too enthralled to its history, but soccer seems to have have forgotten it in a lot of cases. And the former, I mean, it, the pyramid structure has existed I mean, almost as long as the sport has at this point. And there used to be a lot more churn, like it, you could go up and down the league table at any given time and the leagues at any given time, no matter how good a club you were at any point in time. And, you know, that ladder has been lifted a lot with sort of the financial restrictions or, or the financial boon of getting into the Premier League and staying in the Premier League for as long as these nine clubs have. It really has created a have and have not structure. But I just don't know if this is what you want the sport to be long term. So... Jeff, some of us are actually in our mid forties, not our late thirties, but that's. <laughs> I was trying to be nice, that Justin. <laughs> that's all right. I'll take it. I've earned it. Uh, it, it. This is what it is for me. And and when when you talk about football in in England, it is the pyramid. It is everything from your tiny hamlets that have clubs up to you know your Manchester Uniteds and your Liverpools and historically. Here's the thing. Historically, your Everton's and your Sunderland's and your Aston Villas and, and this proposal and this idea that we should put all of the power into realistically the hands of six teams, theoretically the hands of nine teams who are currently good, takes away all of the history of the game and takes away the fact, as you point out, Jeff, there is churn and there is up. And there is down. What the and fuck to me, has the, Manchester United done in a decade? What has Manchester United done outside of the Alex Ferguson era? Where where was Manchester City 15 years ago? Yeah. I mean, uh, there are clubs outside of this top nine right now who have spent more time in the Premier League than Manchester City. Um, and, and, and the other one that really ties in for me that bothers me is the idea of killing the uh, League Cup. I, I realize that having two competitions can be a little excessive. Uh, you know, I, I can see how major teams don't want to put effort into it, given their their compact schedule. But when you think of teams that the League Cup means something to, when you think of Middlesbrough winning the League Cup, when you think of Wednesday winning the League Cup, when you think of Wigan pulling their run and winning the FA Cup, you think of these clubs that care about these club competitions and they care about these things. The football in England is not the property of six teams. It, it is hundreds of teams. It's not even 92. It's hundreds and hundreds of teams and communities that 
live around this and we're watching Macclesfield fall away and, and we're watching what happened with Barry and what could have happened with Bolton and what almost happened with Wednesday. And nobody gives a shit because people in Liverpool and Man United and, you know, up and comers like Man City think that they have the rights to own this game that as far as I'm concerned, it's the game of the people of Britain. Yeah, I mean, so we we talk a little bit about culture culture clashes, and I don't know if it's ironic or, or otherwise, but this this could be the ultimate clash of cultures because Britain as a country has spent a pretty long time in recent years trying to ape America for good or for bad, um, and in many respects, for bad. <laughs> I was trying not Sorry, to be too judgmental. But, you know, in looking to American sports for inspiration or for a top-down structure, um, and as, as I said a few minutes ago, you know, this is kind of like a hybrid. It's, it's a consolidation of power, but it's not a full lockout. It's not a full exclusive top division without the opportunity for entry or egress. You know, it, it's a step towards American sports and a step away from the pyramid you're describing, Justin. Um, but actually, what's rewarding i think about the way in which football operates in britain and the way that fans interact with football in britain is that there's actually there's a real cultural understanding of the importance of the pyramid you know you we've just been through an international weekend and in normal circumstances you will get a lot of fans of even major teams who won't pay too much attention to the internationals on the weekend they'll go and support a non-league club you know they'll put some cash into a small club of part-time players you know just just for the love of the game, quite literally. Um, and so it's a choice. It, it's a choice about the direction of football in the country. It's a choice about how people want to participate. It's a choice about how they want to try and find a way to sustain these smaller clubs that are the lifeblood of the game, that are a feeding ground for the rest of the pyramid. And so it's going to be delicate. It, you know, th This proposal that's on the table is not going to be the proposal that's going to ultimately pass through. But I think what we've got to be careful of as Paddy said, it's an it's a pretty gilt-edged offer, right? There's a lot of money there, there's a lot of opportunity, and what's better, the burden in the hand that's offered with a little bit of an angle towards making it palatable, or the hammer that comes down in two years' time when more clubs have gone to the wall, when those six clubs can frankly just simply say, look, put up or shut up, this is the way it's going to be, and potentially make it much, much more um, controlling and much less... So the problem, the actually problem that underlines all of this, and, and Justin made this point with Macclesfield and Barry and Bolton and any number of other clubs that have fallen into financial disarray is this all could have been prevented by a strong EFL actually protecting these clubs in the first place, which, you know, we, we slag off the EFL a lot on this show for good reason and sometimes just for fun, but the strength of that pyramid is sort of the mobility of it from the second tier down to the, the ninth or the 10th tier, or however long, however deep you want to go. I have a friend from uh, Sweden, from Gothenburg. He's an IFK Gothenburg supporter and they were playing. Uh, they do a trip every year with a bunch of friends. They go see like a lower level English football team. And they get, they're always amazed by this sort of like that this, you can have this tiny town wherever and they have a community club. They ended up in the program because they told them they were coming over and they just like, oh, here's our, here's a bunch of Swedish fans coming over in the program. Um, 
and they've done it to uh they've done like Europa League qualifying games in like Wales and like these tiny like clubs in Wales and they're in European League competition. Yes, it's the second of 13 qualifying rounds or whatever for the second tier European soccer championship, but there is this sort of interconnectivity and this sort of uh I guess hyper I don't say hyper regionalism, but this idea that wherever you grow up, yeah, okay, you probably watch Man U Sunday tea time or Friday night and, and prime time, but Saturday morning at 10 a.m. you can go, you can walk down the street, you can go to the same bar you go to during the week, have a pint, walk over, and, and not just like watch. I have Hartford Athletic 20 minutes from me, and they get a couple, you get 5,000 people at non league football sometimes. And it's it's nice. It's just something to do on the weekend. And yes, those clubs are in dire straits right now because of the shutdown and the quarantine and everything else because they're so dependent on match day revenue in a way the, the Premier League and even the championship isn't. But again, and it's not even all the EFL. It's a, it's a failure of society in general right now that is letting these clubs go to waste. And yes, there are more important things in life than sports right now. But when sports is so ingrained in what who you are, where you come from, and what you do, it does almost become in a lot of ways like it's silly to say that, you know, Sheffield Wednesday is is the corner store. But it kind of is the corner store. And certainly the lower league clubs, you know, it's it's ideally it's the same mom and pop or it's community owned and it's it's something worth saving and worth protecting and yes this will do it in the short term and no macclesfield town is probably never making the premier league but there's value in the dream right and what what you're going to hear over the next few days is the big clubs PR spin, right? They're going to say, we're doing this because we we care about the lowly clubs. They're going to say, we want to ingest this money <laughs> in to save the floor payment. They're going to hear this. And people people got to be a bit wise to, right? Because if you start looking at the deal that they're going to get, and yes, they're going to give up some money initially. And yes, they're going to take... They have uh, no shortage of money. They just, the money <laughs> just... Whatever, it's just money. They just spent it's a billion pounds in the transfer window. So... John Henry, the owner of uh, Liverpool and the Boston Red Sox, I was wondering about this because he's in the process of forming an SPAC, which is essentially a company that does not exist, does not provide a service, comes into existence via uh, public funding, venture capital funding, and IPO for the express purpose of buying a portion of the company that he owns, which owns, you know... Liverpool, Boston Red Sox, the New England Sports Network, I think a chunk of Fenway itself. He's going to get a billion dollars just from that for less than 20% of the, or less than 25% of the sports group. I like, I don't know why he's doing that, but it would seem to me that it's to expand within the European soccer realm, whether it's, you know, money for this or whether it's to buy a buy a feeder club to compete with you know manchester city or leicester or something like that it's just he's going to get a billion dollars for functionally doing nothing and pay out far less to get essentially control over the entire english football pyramid it just smacks it just strikes me as so garish and unnecessary and yes 
the lower league clubs need some support right now. We are talking about what, $250 million. And yeah, yeah, I know, $100 million here, $100 million there. Sooner or later, we're talking about real money. That can easily be found, again, like, am I talking about nationalizing soccer? No, but $250 million within the greater British budget is not a significant amount of money. So being from New England and being a big baseball fan growing up, obviously, uh, despite the fact that my family roots were Braves fans, uh, grew up a huge Red Sox fan. And, and when John Henry bought the Red Sox, um, and he was really really smart about how he did it. He's, he's a, a brilliant businessman in the sense of his ability to understand, recognize, and manipulate financial markets. Now, without getting too political about it, you can place whatever value of judgment you want upon that skill and its worth to humanity. That said, the man is brilliant at it. He bought the Boston Red Sox. He installed some uh, very intelligent people in charge of that organization and uh my life changed on uh was that september october 27th 2004 right uh it it was it was a beautiful thing and we're very grateful for john henry and doing that and to then watch what john henry and tom warner who should be dragged through the grossest pit of mud you've ever found in your life uh People like that in charge of this organization, when I watch what they did to the Red Sox, who, well, always having been a big budget baseball team, were also as much of a community club as anybody within baseball. And the connection between the city of Boston and the Red Sox and their park was unique and special. And within a couple of years of uh, Fenway Sports Group existing and buying, I was priced out of attending games. I was being offered uh, to pay, I think it was at the time, probably about $150 to buy a brick from Fenway Park where they tore down a wall. Um, and I literally was not allowed to, I cannot go to games. I could not bring my children to games. I cannot afford to. And I, a large part of the reason, not the entire reason, but a large part of the reason I'm no longer a fan of the Boston Red Sox is because of the business first view that John Henry took with that franchise and used it to line his own pockets at the expense of the connection with the local community. Well, let, let's, uh, let's take that lesson and it's profound. Let's make it real for our listeners and then let's go macro. So, um, what does that sound like to you? You know, loyal fans who uh, felt that their club was the heart of their community that all of a sudden found themselves priced out of being able to afford a regular match day ticket, being asked to pay exceptional amounts for something that amounted to a brick in a wall or an executive box. Um, and, uh, you know, slowly fell out of love with the club. Sounds like Sheffield Wednesday fans and Dave Fonchan's theory, right? far less far less internationally successful and let's be clear we haven't won a championship um but there's a pattern the pattern is when sport becomes pure business and when assets are treated purely as commodities um and when there is no emotion attached to the engagement and that's the delicate balance i think that the english football pyramid the british football pyramid depending if you want to extend this broader 
actually faces is do you want to reward the brilliance of John Henry? Um, and let's be clear, I don't know if we've talked about it on this pod, but I've certainly talked about it with other people. Liverpool's transfer policy of late has been sensational in terms of the money they've recouped for the, recouped for the players they've sold. You know, they managed to take 25 million, was it, off a club called Sheffield United the other they, day? They've, they've been the best team in Europe for the last three years. Bingo. And then the players they brought in, they brought in Thiago, yeah. you know, 25 yes. million and same, right? So Sheffield United played for them to buy a proven European player from Bayern Munich. Pretty clever. Do we want to reward that shrewd business logic, but which is completely devoid of emotion and that strips the assets to the bone? Or do we want to put some protections in place? And that's the question that's going to come into play. And so, you know, the question about was raised a minute or two ago, you know, does the British purse allow for this? It's going to require some intervention, right? You've got to decide, do you want to protect the pyramid? Do you want to protect those communities? Do you want to protect those clubs? Do you want to stop it becoming a purely capitalist enterprise? Or do you want to let free markets take their course? And if you're going to go for the latter, you have to accept the consequences. I know what I want. Sorry, Daddy. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to play a little devil's advocate about the Wednesday stuff because the reason, or at least the reason we're led to believe that prices have been hiked at Sheffield Wednesday is to increase uh, our revenue, which then helps us uh, compete better in the transfer market and and basically allows us to buy players through the EFL financial fair play, right? So that's the... I know it's it's literally small, small pebbles in the grand ocean we are throwing things into here, but that's one of the reasons that Chance Series says that prices have gone up. If you pay more to the club, you get be able to afford more blah, blah, blah. In COVID times, that makes less, less and less sense because we aren't making enough on gate receipts to even have that impact on kind of us buying a puffer jacket from the club for 80 quid. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think the EFL a little bit to blame for at least some of the smaller clubs overcharging the fans uh, and getting into the gates rather than a greedy businessman that wants to make money off uh, the the championship winning team like Red Sox, for instance. Okay, there was no there was no financial fair play in baseball that said you must earn this much to be able to spend this much. That has that same impact that has on championship and uh, League One, League Two clubs. Uh, <clears throat> so I think Chancey was a little bit hamstrung by that, and that again leads us back into why Parry is trying to change the financial structure of the EFL. Right, uh, he might be desperate. There's definitely, I think bargaining to be done on this initial deal on the table but again devil's advocate a little bit we're in a kind of dire straits right now clubs will run out of money and go bust if something isn't done and where i think this current deal is not the deal to go along with it's a starting point for a discussion right uh and i think that needs to be had right now so i i think what we've got to do is not be uh naive and take the first deal that they offer us because the big hungry wolves will eat us alive eventually. Well, Patty, just to back up you, you kind of finished with exactly that point that you raised at the very beginning of this whole conversation, which I really wanted to hit on. That was key. And it's the timing of this, right? It, it is. Is it a good deal for most EFL clubs? It probably is. Cause if you are a, you know, fourth division club, who, who are we, 
who are we playing that was the constant fourth division club? Rochdale, right? If you're Rochdale, this is a good deal for you, right? It helps save your club. It keeps you afloat. It gives you some of the some of the wonderful things. I mean, the uh, the infrastructure funding, right? Is 88 million a season. It's 10 million goes to Wembley, and out of that 78 million, it progressively goes down the pyramid. But if you're Rochdale, you're just getting five hundred thousand dollars a year Sorry, i've got to stop to you there just in your infrastructure go ahead wembley gets 10 million of the 88 yes correct right scrap that straight away we spent 800 <laughs> million on that fucking white elephant anyway move on <laughs> fair point fair point but to have these infrastructure funds the amount of money that's going towards grassroots football and i mean it without We'll leave this tangent for another day. I think it's gross that uh, women's football is thrown into this sort of situation. It's like, oh, we'll throw them a few bucks so they can figure it out. Um, and and just a quick additional, fuck you, John Henry. How about you fund your women's team with the seventh richest club in the world, right? Uh, but overall, there's a lot of things to like for most EFL clubs. This is a really tempting deal. But, Patty, you, you hit the nail on the head at the beginning. It's not a coincidence that this came out right now. This is throwing this out there when people are at their most desperate clubs are literally attempting to survive. Here's an opportunity to survive. And all you have to do is give the power to just these couple guys. I'm sure they'll treat you right down the road. So here's the ultimate problem. You know, we're debating this in 2020. This was set in motion in 1992. Ultimately we're at this point now and When it, what it comes down to is Liverpool does not need Leighton Orient to exist to make a lot of money and to be a successful football team. They but just football don't. needs Leighton Orient. So I guess it's a, it's like a short-termism thing. There will eventually be a deleterious effect on the role of the sport within British culture, within British fandom. You will lose fans in the long term. But in the short term, you'll make a lot of money. John Henry's stocks will go up. Awesome. Right. He'll be able to buy another yacht. Um, You know, this is a, this is, again, this comes down to the EFL not being fit for purpose and not protecting these clubs in the first place and not pushing for a more uh, egalitarian structure up and down the pyramid. You know, part of me almost thinks they'd be better off to just tell the, the, the actual it's it's nine clubs it's really like four or five clubs to just fuck off to their european super league and do what they want and try to you know rein in or you know regain some sense of the original pyramid just because the the reason this kind of like parachute payments and everything else in the financial valuations i keep thinking back to the the whole wednesday Wembley final and just I forget what it was I think it was it was pitted as like the 180 million pound game because the Premier League was up for a new TV contract and you know if you won you'd get your cut of the whatever it was and it was like 180 million pounds or something and you just can't you know the pyramid it, you can't survive like that it creates really perverse incentives within the lower league teams that on some level I don't want to say lead to them going bust, but you create uh, a situation where if you're a new owner, you can't afford to buy a Premier League team in a lot of cases. There's very few people that can. And the kind of people that are, are, you know, 
know, John Henry is a lesser of many evils at that point, but you can buy into a championship club or, or a League One club and try to essentially, you know, spin the wheel and try to get that quick payoff. And I don't, I don't know that Chen Siri did that specifically. I, I don't know what his plan was when he bought the team. I think it was sort of a, of a perfect storm that first year with, uh, after he took over with Carlos and the Wembley season, but you know, you get, you get that close and you want to keep pushing for it. But we've seen teams that have, have tried that and, gone into FFP jail or tumbled down the pyramid shortly after. And, you know, Sunderland's the obvious example, like, but there's plenty of others that have been yo-yo clubs or left. I mean, like there's almost a good, like Hull city for what it's worth, you know, going up and down there, there are worse ways to make a living basically. And I don't, again, I think we're just discussing this 28 years later and there's been, 280 different things that have happened to to get us to this point and i really don't know where we go from here jeff was that a zombie apocalypse reference there basically suggesting that it doesn't really matter because we're all going to be walking around like kind of flagrant idiots in about six months time i mean we just sort of you know tune in turn on a wednesday game and drop out basically (laughs) (laughs) to be continued We'll take a break. We come back. We'll get into the the meat of the show a half hour in. Discuss what little Wednesday news there is and preview our upcoming fixtures. co-host who shall remain nameless but made us do this podcast on the international break week suggested that we'd have plenty of transfer and injury update news coming for this segment we have none (laughs) we did do a 37 minute segment already so we can just move on because no one wants to talk about lee camp (laughs) to the international (laughs) break uh liam palmer was not eligible for selection because of his back injury with scotland who won on penalties against israel callum Patterson did feature, and they will move on next month to face Serbia for a spot in the Euro 2020s slash 2021s. In also adjacent Wednesday news, Eddie Newhue's Kosovo went out 2-1 to North Macedonia. Newhue played the first half and was subbed off at halftime when they were down 2-1. I did watch the second half of this game. It was a fucking mess. And they really could have used some big lad up front to hold the ball up and maintain possession because did not come off for them. That is the Wednesday slash international break news. Imagine being subbed off at halftime against North Macedonia. (laughs) What's that going to do for your confidence? Uh, We will now... It's a South Macedonia, by the way. I've never heard of a North Macedonia. They should have won it at the death. They had a... uh, The goalkeeper spilled a pretty decent shot on the ground like in stoppage time and didn't really push it far enough away, but made a great follow-up save. That really got to bury that. Can, can I just confirm you watched? I watched the second half. I forgot it was on that early. You actually watched that. That's I watched the second half of the match. Yes. You see, this is why you need a local non-league team to go and watch on international break weekend. <laughs> I'll tell you what; it was more entertaining than Wednesday against Rochdale. <laughs> we will now move on to previews of hopefully more exciting matches, and we'll start with Birmingham City, and Justin discovers Birmingham. 
I'm not going to say a thing about Birmingham. I'm not going to say a thing about Birmingham City and their history other than their performance this season. So, uh, all jokes aside, uh, sometimes they can be a club that seems to sneak below the radar and doesn't seem to you know, really come up too much. Uh, I think all of us were a little bit surprised to remember that Aitor Karanka was uh, recently signed there as I manager. I forget they're in the league and haven't been relegated at some point <laughs> in the last three seasons. Still doing what they do. Uh, and, and this year, so far, they're being Birmingham City. They've uh, won one, drawn three. Uh, they have uh, scored three goals and given up two. Uh, so they did beat Brentford week one, and since then they have drawn with Swansea, Rotherham, and Stoke. Uh, not super exciting. What is interesting is the number of new players they have in that are actually making an impact. Uh, Karanka really prefers to play a uh, rather defensive 4-2-3-1. You don't say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what he does. Uh, he brought in Neil Etheridge as the goalkeeper, which is probably a pretty good move. Etheridge was actually pretty good with Cardiff City. Uh when they were in the Premier League, uh, brought in uh, George Friend to be a nice center back pairing with uh, Harley Dean. Uh, brought in Adam Clayton uh, to be a defensive midfielder who has played pretty well and is still rocking a terrible, terrible beard. Uh, also brought in uh, Ivan Sanchez. Go ahead. Basically, the new Middlesbrough. Yes. Oh, God. I can make Birmingham even duller by signing lots of Middlesbrough players. <laughs> oh, Patty, that's beautiful. This is exactly what this is. This is a absolutely Middleborough uh, off-season and performance, and so far it's working for them. They're eighth in the table um, with that uh, three goals scored and two against. Uh, they did sell Jude Bellingham. That was a big off-season move. They sold Jude Bellingham to Dortmund for – just under 23 million pounds with some opportunities to bump it up to 25 million pounds. Well, so let's just back that up just for a second, uh, Justin, because uh, Birmingham city brought in the best part of 25 million of uh, inward revenue. There you go. There's the difference. They can do it. Why can't we? Why doesn't Where anybody want to buy Liam Palmer? I mean, he's an international <laughs> right back. 25 million, please. Dortmund. But Liam Palmer wasn't a uh, 16-year-old uh, attacking midfielder playing at the championship level. So. He was 20. He was 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> we turned uh, into a right back. We're, Scotland. we're so sad. We're so sad. <laughs> uh, it, it seems that Birmingham is spending the money relatively well based on the results so far this year. But given that they have Karanka, you're not going to see too much excitement. They... They enjoy hoofing the ball long. Um, they got, uh, I believe it's pronounced Jukowicz, but I could be wrong. Uh, and I've seen him. He's another prototypical uh, championship center forward. Uh, hoof the ball up to him. He likes to distribute it out wide to uh, most of their offense seems to run on the right side through Ivan Sanchez. He uh, just came over from a Spanish club I've never heard of before, the second division Spanish club, but seems to be doing uh, – a good job playing as that attacking right side midfielder. Uh, they like to have their fullbacks overlap. They like to come down the right side, cross the balls in. They've been pretty good from set kicks uh, going directly at the net. And they have actually used a fairly aggressive press, which has led to them uh, picking up a lot of fouls, as it were. Justin, do they have 
any interest in buying a proven in the box goal scorer who's guaranteed to combine with <laughs> Isa Karanka and get them to promotion. I, I seem to recall uh, <laughs> Karanka might have been burned by that, that striker not getting along very well. But... Damn it! Uh, oh, never mind. That was such a good ruse. Just, just imagine us going towards the Birmingham. Would you like this new this new play with him? <laughs> He's called Jordan Rhodes. <laughs> just have him Jordan have him Rhodes. grow a little handlebar mustache, and he'll <laughs> be the wiser. I was like, that's, I think I recognize him. That's the uh, Big Sam line, right? It was a Big Sam that made the line if his name was. Uh, you know, had a Spanish accent on it. He'd Rodinho. have gotten a top job. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, Rodinho. Rodinho. I'm guessing that given that home field advantage isn't quite where it is um, these days, I'm, I'm guessing we're possibly in line for a fairly dull game on Saturday. Although, you know, this, I, this feels like a nailed on nil nil to me. Yeah, I worry a little bit that the left side of our team out wide uh, between Van Aken and, uh, you know, whoever ends up at sort of left back, whether Harris would be nice to have there in this situation, although probably reach. But if they're going to be attacking down that side, that's, well, while I enjoy us distributing it up the left, that's not necessarily the side I want to be uh, trying to shut them down. So, uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Harris play over on that side to try to see if he can slow down Ivan Sanchez and give uh, Ben Aiken, assuming that's him that plays, the support that he needs on Saturday. Look on up. the bright side, at least it's at Hillsborough and not at St. Andrews. So even with no fans, there'll be more atmosphere. Is it not? Oh, my fault. I thought I was at, uh, I thought it was at Birmingham. In fact, I think that it is. Yeah, oh, it fucking dirty. is. Are we ever going to play any home games? It feels like we're playing away. Well, we don't want to. We don't want to play home games. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. Well, I don't notice. In that case, in that case, scrub my last comment. At least San Andreas will have more atmosphere than it fucking normally does. Will it though? <laughs> Remove it from. I would put that guy in that box again, just to, just like on his like little executive box to get his reaction for when we score like three against them. I mean, the, the big the big deal is going to be how many of the eight injured players, which we went over last week, how many of them are going to be back for, for Saturday. And, and I haven't seen much update. I mean, we'll obviously Monk will give his update later in the week, uh, Thursday or Friday, they'll have the press conference. But, you know, there's, you know, is Tom Lee's going to play? Is he back? Um, I'm pretty sure Iorf is out. Um Izzy Brown said he would be back. That would be really nice. Might be nice to have Alex Hunt, but you know, I, I don't think we're quite sure what we're gonna get. Looks like Palmer's gonna be out, doesn't it? Still, so I think those are two definite outs. Like I said, Lee's is probably a game time. Hide might be available. I think he's been playing with the under twenty threes. Because on the bench at least. Allegedly centre half, but when he's played for us in the past in the first team, it's been right back. So well, they um, did play him at centre half that one game, and he immediately like gave up a penalty and got sent off. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think he'll probably go on the. If, if we are short for defenders, he'll probably be on the bench rather than the starting position. Uh, yeah. I, don't know, I mean, again, Showy. I don't know anything about him either. So, other than I'm sure Thursday at a 
Monk's press availability. We'll find that all out. We do have a second game to preview because there is a midweek home fixture. We'll have to wait a bit longer to see the brand new Brentford Community Stadium. But we will get the bees at home at Hillsborough. The last encounter did not go very well, Justin. I blacked that memory out. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was the last That's, game before uh, the uh, shutdown. Yeah, no, I, no, I, Jeff, I don't remember. Mm. Don't remember. It's a been a long six, six months, game. six years, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Let's look forward, move forward. Mm. Uh, Brent, Brentford once again has done what they did last year, which is brought in one of the most talented teams in the league and promptly had an atrocious start. And unfortunately for them last year, it cost them. They, uh, I think they ended up finishing what a goal difference or one point off of automatic promotion. They absolutely deserved to go up last year and did not. Um, and you know, that could, could really have been their sort of peak moment akin to our, uh, Wembley appearance, uh, We'll see. I'm kind of rooting for them because I'd like to see some new blood be successful. But so far this year, not so good. They're 15th in the league. They uh, did beat Huddersfield, which should not be considered a great achievement. Uh, They lost to the aforementioned Birmingham City, drew with Millwall, and then had an atrocious game, their last game against Preston, where they had a 2-0 lead. And I might have even been at the half, but shipped four straight unanswered. so they're having their struggles. Uh, I, I think Thomas Frank is a good manager. His his four three three has been really really fun to watch the last few years. They are, you know, short passes, a lot of movement. They love scoring from open play. They can play up the middle. They can play from the wing. Uh, they're they're deadly on the counter. Um, you know, they they've got just a, a great list of players who have Premier League skill. And Premier League, uh, you know, tactical ability to to play at this, but just starting to lose them. Ollie Watkins has obviously made a huge splash up at uh, Villa. They did get twenty eight million for him, and Brentford has been a club that's been able to reinvest their money wisely. So I I won't be surprised if they do. Uh, Saeed Ben Rama has not really played for them at all this year. I think he's got about forty minutes of total time. Rumor right now is that he's West. He's got a deal with West Ham for somewhere in the range of thirty to forty million pounds. Um, there's some disagreement going on. West Ham's really hoping to get him in. Uh, that would be a huge loss for them. He's he's got frightening skill up, up front. Uh, him and Brian and Bueno uh, last year with Watkins in the middle. That was. That was the best front three in the championship by a mile. Um, uh, De Silva has been playing really well as a midfielder this year. He's been excellent. I've, I've always been a fan of his game. He he controls the ball. He moves it quickly. Uh, some of their struggles are that uh, they had uh, Norgard in the middle kind of playing as a, a six who can distribute Um the last couple of years and, and he hasn't really hasn't done anything this year. He was kind of the key to their play last year. One, one of their big signings that Brentford did bring in is um, a guy named Ivan Tony, who they got from Peterborough who popped 24 goals last year with Peterborough in league one. And just thinking back, I believe he had something like 16, 18 the year before in league one. This is all in his early twenties. And 
Uh, so far, so good. I believe he's got three goals for them this season. So once again, this could be a case of Brentford selling high, taking the money and buying up some new people. But for Brentford's sake, uh, I hope at some point they stop being a just a selling club and they start actually making the results count. Normally for this segment, we have James slag off small towns in Britain. But I do want to get your take as a former London resident on the location of the new Brentford Stadium, the Brentford Community Stadium. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it is adjacent to the Kew Bridge Railway Station, and the nearest London Underground Station is Gunnersbury. I think one of the uh, one of the upsides maybe that it's slightly closer to any London Underground Station because <laughs> the. <laughs> The walk to uh, to the old Griffin Park was quite substantial, but uh, to be fair to Brentford, it's not very far away. It's it's like I don't know, less than a mile from uh, from the old stadium. It's a little bit closer to the M4. In fact, if you drive along the M4 on the way to Heathrow out of central London, you can see it. Um, yeah, I mean the the trouble with everything that Justin just said, it just made Brentford sound like a powerhouse to which we are subservient, which is pretty damn accurate, really. Um, they you know, did they, just beat they, us five 0 <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, so so let's let's be really really clear. You know, Brentford are a team to admire. They're a club to admire. They're a club that's got their foundation right. They work with their local community as their first principle. Um, it's a really big deal for them the fact they've moved their stadium. You know, they've they've moved their location, but in at least to my understanding in as best as they can in consultation with their fans and try to create an environment that's, you know, in some way replicable of, of Griffin park, which was this really tight, intimate inner city stadium. You know, we talk about the pubs on four corners, but they were kind of stands piled upon themselves, very, very small uh, environment. And, and they created a wonderful atmosphere down there and, and literally one of the best away days that any Wednesday I, We'll, we'll talk to you about is going down to different days at Brentford. Unfortunately, the last two I've been to, we've been absolutely pummeled because um, we've been on the receiving end of a team that's been really well constructed, a club that's... That's, that's when the pubs on four corners come in handy. <laughs> well, no, they, they definitely do, as well as the fact that their fans are a really good bunch. Um, no, the team is, you know, is based on football data science, right? You know, they, they sell well. But they sell because well because they buy undervalued players. They develop them well. They have a great feeder system of clubs as well as their own youth development system. And so you can absolutely guarantee that despite all of the losses that you've just described, Justin, they've got some good players coming through. And the choices they've made in terms of buying from the lower leagues or buying from abroad, um, there will be talent there and that team will, will gel. Um, they have this churn that means that every year it takes them a little while to get going, but I've no doubt that they'll be there or thereabouts in the championship this season. So I would expect a pretty hard game. Um, the trouble is I don't know anything about them because it's a new generation as is pretty much the case every year with Brentford. Well, I, I think you're going to see basically what you do. I mean, Frank's only been there a couple of years, but he, he's carrying on some of the play that they had before. And, and again, like if, if you don't have guys like Brian and Bueno and, 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 and Silva scarred into your brain from watching the last couple of times that we played them, um, you know, Rico Henry just bombing down the left side. Like Lasa that's eBay. I think is back in Scandinavia now too. 
Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, and, and here's the thing. And, and you, you did make the point about that constant churn. They brought in 12, they brought in 14 players this year, 12 of them. They bought two of them on loan out of those 14 players. One of them, Ivan Tony is getting any significant playing time. And, and I don't think it's a situation just given their track record. It's, this isn't a situation where they bought a bunch of shit. They bought a bunch of players with a long-term view of making things work. And, and that's, that's why, you know, and this ties in with our, our conversation at the beginning and the whole talk of this, there's a right way to move up the football pyramid uh, to do it in a way that is, you know, without getting too political about it, that's almost uh, morally correct, right? To, to play by the rules and, and to not just be some rich asshole from another country who wants to, who wants to take over, but to, to build a club and, and to utilize the way that the system works. And, and Brentford is an absolute model for it. And I would have much rather seen them go up than Fulham, who follows the other model. So I'm sympathetic to that argument. I say as I, out of the corner of my eye, watch the Tampa Bay Rays on their way to being the Houston Astros again. And the Rays certainly, I think, are a version of this where they place valuations on players. And if that valuation is met, they will move that player on, essentially, which is which is what Brentford does. And that works in both ways. They look for players for other teams they think they can develop or that are undervalued and, and bring them in. And that's all well and good, but I think... Again, this sort of splits my my two fandoms, my two sports fandoms, which I guess has been a recurring theme throughout this show. I think there's value in like the Liam Palmers that come up with your team that you get an attachment to that are good championship level players. And we joke about, you know, 25 million pounds for, for Liam Palmer. Yeah, you move him on. You know, Dominic Iorfa, if they get 10 million pounds for him from from Watford or a, or a lower tier Premier League team. Yes, you have to consider it, but there's this, you know, this sort of sliding doors scenario where Dominic Iorfa, you know, plays for you for five or six seasons, gets promoted, becomes captain and becomes, you know, a Nigel Pearson-like Wednesday legend. And I think there is, there is value in that as a, as a fan watching the same players year over year, watching them grow with your club, watching them develop with your club. The end goal, and I think this goes back to the, the conversation we had at the start of the show. Yes, for God's sake, again, we're all in our late 30s. Some of us are in our mid-40s. We spent the last 20 fucking years watching this team outside of the Premier League. And at that point, it becomes like, God, just get us back to the the glory days, manna from heaven. You know, the, the, those mid-90s, Chris Waddle. David Hurst, Nigel Pearson, just the, that sort of, you know, soccer is never better than when you're 12 years old in a lot of cases, like, like any other sports fandom, I think. But, you know, what do you have to do to get there? And, and Brentford might have the right model. And I, one of these years, they'll probably hit um, because you, you run this back enough times, you make enough savvy moves enough times even if it's like a 52 percent chance of upgrading you do it enough times you eventually build a team that's going to get promotion i just don't know 
you know, we've seen like, yes, it'll be great to see Wednesday go to Stanford Bridge or the Etihad and get their fucking socks knocked off by whatever 100 million pound team is on the field for a year. It'll be fun. But what are they going to have to do to get there? What do they have to do once they get there? You know, who are they going to have to bring in? You know, players we have no connection to, you know, that whatever squad gets promoted, whenever that happens, maybe we'll still be alive. Maybe our kids will be able to watch it. Um, You know, it's not just a zero sum game. And the Premier League's created this aura of it being the be all and end all of not just English soccer, but really world soccer. And yes, there'd be more money for the club, more stability for the club. We'll still be moaning and groaning after every game, regardless whether we're in the the first tier or the tenth tier. But I, as much as I ever enjoy watching Wednesday football, which you know is never as much Man, as it I probably enjoy, should I enjoy, be. I enjoy it but, every week. Yeah, I tune yeah, yeah. the fuck in every week because that's what we do. But I yeah, know what but, you're saying. But, but it's like, yeah, it's a. Is it fair to say, Jeff, that Brentford's got you thinking? Because that was a long thought on the back of Brentford. (laughs) So I guess the argument is, it's not even really an argument. Brentford is a better run club than Sheffield Wednesday at this point. Yes. Brentford is better run than many clubs in the Premier League at this point. Yes. And without sort of the financial advantages inherent in being a Premier League club. Yes. I just don't know if that's what I want my soccer club to be. What's okay. the alternative without, without disagreeing no, I'm not with saying, the point I'm overall? Not saying, I'm not saying so you shouldn't. Is, but could you, be, could you be, you could be Wolves, right? And there's nothing wrong with Wolves. What Wolves did was excellent. Wolves got rich ownership. They bought a fuckload of the right players. That's what we almost were in 2016. Well, the other thing is if we if, almost bought that. If Wolves doesn't go up that year, you know, FFP might sure. come for them at some point. The other thing. Well, you know, look they, at us right now. Yeah. Look at us I right just... now. We're fucking minus seven. Because <laughs> <laughs> we went with the Wolves model instead right. of the Brentford model. I just... I... If you're, if you're going to espouse the idea of, like, community connection and stuff like that, I don't think it can be that mercenary. Like, yes, but... Wednesday absolutely needs to have a better transfer policy. They need to scout better. They need to develop academy players better. They need to, you know, have some statistical modeling uh, influencing their decision-making process. I'm not saying it has to be as, uh, you know, sort of rigorous or, you know, zero-sum as what Brentford does. But I don't, I don't know, maybe this is me. I don't watch soccer's, generally in Sheffield Wednesday specifically to sort of admire the efficiency of a team's transfer policy. I think think that's a great point, but Jeff, here's the thing. And this this may not be a terrible point to end it on because it it wraps up what we were talking about before. Who these days climbs the English pyramid in a way that puts community first? Because both of those models, if we're talking about wolves and, hey, we, we just dropped $40 million and we brought in a bunch of guys from 
you know, through our sketchy Portuguese agent connection. And, and to be and fair, they're, I, they're beautiful to watch. I, it was it was wonderful football. The games I saw of Wolves that season, beautiful football. I yeah. loved watching Wolves, and I root for them now because they they play enjoyable football. I root for Man City because they play enjoyable football. Uh, like I I get this right, and and but that model that model of Wolves is one way to do it. Great, that's not what you're talking about, about building a team with players that you care about and you work with for a while, but neither is this Brentford constant churn. So who are the teams? There, there, is, there, is, there is a middle point, Justin. Um, no, don't do it, James. Don't do it. Can we move on? Because <laughs> I don't want to say it. So just... uh, bull- don't do it, bullshit. James. Bullshit. They, they, got luck- they got lucky with a brilliant manager. How often does that happen? Yeah. <sighs> There are very few teams get lucky with a brilliant manager. Also, also, podcast, also, 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 the league was shit that year, and the Premier League was shit last year. <laughs> no, we're, we're already talking about it. This has much. been episode 109 of the Owls <laughs> America Pass. No, Thank you. Currently looking no. for season sponsors. Get in touch at owlsamericas.com or owlsamericas at gmail.com. You can also find and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Owls Americas. Our podcast intro and bumpers are by fellow Wednesdayites, Reverend and the Makers. The podcast is on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Podbeam, and probably anywhere else you choose to download podcasts. There's no wrong way to listen to the show. Just do what feels right. Wherever you choose to consume the Owls Americas, we ask that you rate and review our show. It helps more Wednesdayites find our ramblings. Justin is on Twitter at New England Owl. Justin, what would it take to get you back to Fenway or an adjoining bar, perhaps? Great question. Let me first make the point that it's actually at New England Owls, which I didn't realize till I commented <laughs> on... Joe Cran writing an excellent article, and he responded to me, thanks, guys. And I thought, well, no, it's just guy, but that's okay. Uh, so your Twitter handle's been wrong the entire time we've been on this podcast? Yeah, nobody fucking pays attention to me anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it. Um, Jeff, nothing, because I'm, I'm done. My sports okay. fandom has moved on. Uh, and you know what? That whole area by Fenway, Lansdowne Street, and all that uh, – there were a number of delightful hole in the wall bars yeah. that uh, I do like closed uh, down years ago. I had a place across I don't really know the cross Massachusetts. It's called like the Blackbird or something like that. I've been there a few times before games. It's a little bit of a walk, but good uh good cocktails, good tapas, good small plates. James is on Twitter at Manhattan Owl. James, how's that ten percent beer treating you? Everything's a little bit foggy now, Jeff. Um, but that might have just been the extended tour of Brentford that we've been on for the last 20 minutes. Um, I will uh, I will tell you in the morning when I've spoken to Japan. <laughs> Patty is on Twitter at Patty A. Jones and at New England Owls. Patty, I have a bone to pick with you about your... I don't know if you posted on Twitter or Facebook with your list of best albums of the year so far. There was a, there was no Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Um <laughs> I like her. I think she's very entertaining. As the music's a little bit dull. Yeah, we'll take that offline. Yeah, I will say that drinking just four whiskeys and uh, sprouts <laughs> it does make you very drunk. <laughs> and during the uh. Brentford, during the Brentford preview, I think I blacked out for a little bit. <laughs> I think most of our listeners did as well, Paddy. If there's anyone still actually at this point in the podcast, then congrats, people. Paddy, you've uh. been drinking sprouts. 
<laughs> well, no, I ate sprouts, but I drank whiskey. I think we can make them in a smoothie. That's probably a thing that's popular in certain neighborhoods in New York City. Lower East Side, Soho, imagine. I don't know. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Mm. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro, and you can certainly count on similarly engaging podcasts next international break. <laughs> <laughs>